1982, Vice President George H.W. Bush and his aides began pushing for the involvement of the CIA and U.S. military in drug interdiction efforts. Mexican troops during a gun battle in Michoacan, 2007. Mexico's drug war claims nearly 50,000 lives each year. The Office of National Drug Control Policy, ONP, was originally established by the National Narcotics Leadership Act of 1988,5 which mandated a national anti-drug media campaign for youth, which would later become the National Youth Anti-Drug Media Campaign 56. The director of ONP is commonly known as the Drugs R41 and it was first implemented in 1989 under President George H.W. Bush, and raised to cabinet-level status by Bill Clinton in 1993. These activities were subsequently funded by the Treasury and General Government Appropriations Act of 1998-59-60 The Drug-Free Media Campaign Act of 1998 codified the campaign at 21 U.S.C. 1708. 21st Century An international group called the Global Commission on Drug Policy released a report on June 2, 2011, stating that the war on drugs has failed. Citation needed the commission was made up of 22 self-appointed members including a number of prominent international politicians and writers. U.S. Surgeon General Regina Benjamin also released the first ever national prevention strategy. On May 21, 2012, the U.S. government published an updated version of its drug policy. The director of ONP stated simultaneously that this policy is somewhat different from the war on drugs. The U.S. government sees the policy as a third-way approach to drug control, an approach that is based on the results of a huge investment in research from some of the world's preeminent scholars on disease of substance abuse. The policy does not see drug legalization as the silver bullet solution to drug control. It is not a policy where success is measured by the number of arrests made or prisons built. At the same meeting was a declaration signed by the representatives of Italy, the Russian Federation, Sweden, the United Kingdom and the United States in line with this, our approach must be a balanced one, combining effective enforcement to restrict the supply of drugs, with efforts to reduce demand and build recovery, supporting people to live a life free of addiction. In March 2016 the International Narcotics Control Board stated that the international drug control treaties do not mandate a war on drugs. United States Domestic Policy According to Human Rights Watch, the war on drugs caused soaring arrest rates that disproportionately targeted African Americans due to various factors. John Ehrlichman, an aide to Nixon, said that Nixon used the war on drugs to criminalize and disrupt black and hippie communities and their leaders. The present state of incarceration in the U.S. as a result of the war on drugs arrived in several stages. By 1971, different stops on drugs had been implemented for more than 50 years, since 1914, 1937 etc., with only a very small increase of inmates per 100,000 citizens. During the first nine years after Nixon coined the expression war on drugs, statistics showed only a minor increase in the total number of imprisoned citation needed. After 1980, the situation began to change. In the 1980s, while the number of arrests for all crimes had risen by 28%, the number of arrests for drug offenses rose 126%. The result of increased demand was the development of privatization and the for-profit prison industry. The U.S. Department of Justice, reporting on the effects of state initiatives, has stated that, from 1990 through 2000, the increasing number of drug offenses accounted for 27% of the total growth among black inmates, 7% of the total growth among Hispanic inmates, and 15% of the growth among white inmates. In addition to prison or jail, the United States provides for the deportation of many non-citizens convicted of drug offenses. In 1994, 
The New England Journal of Medicine reported that the war on drugs resulted in the incarceration of one million Americans each year. In 2008, the Washington Post reported that of 1.5 million Americans arrested each year for drug offenses, half a million would be incarcerated. In addition, one in five black Americans would spend time behind bars due to drug laws. Federal and state policies also impose collateral consequences on those convicted of drug offenses, such as denial of public benefits or licenses, that are not applicable to those convicted of other types of crime. In particular, the passage of the 1990 Solomon, Lautenberg Amendment led many states to impose mandatory driver's license suspensions, of at least six months, for persons committing a drug offense, regardless of whether any motor vehicle was involved. Approximately 191,000 licenses were suspended in this manner in 2016, according to a prison policy initiative report. Sentencing disparities. In 1986, the U.S. Congress passed laws that created a 100 to 1 sentencing disparity for the trafficking or possession of crack when compared to penalties for trafficking of powder cocaine, which had been widely criticized as discriminatory against minorities, mostly blacks, who were more likely to use crack than powder cocaine. This 100-1 ratio had been required under federal law since 1986. Persons convicted in federal court of possession of 5 grams of crack cocaine received a minimum mandatory sentence of 5 years in federal prison. On the other hand, possession of 500 grams of powder cocaine carries the same sentence in 2010, the Fair Sentencing Act cut the sentencing disparity to 18,1. According to Human Rights Watch, Crime statistics show that in the United States in 1999 compared to non-minorities, African Americans were far more likely to be arrested for drug crimes, and received much stiffer penalties and sentences. Statistics from 1998 show that there were wide racial disparities in arrests, prosecutions, sentencing and deaths. African American drug users made up for 35% of drug arrests, 55% of convictions, and 74% of people sent to prison for drug possession crimes. Nationwide African Americans were sent to state prisons for drug offenses 13 times more often than other races, even though they only supposedly comprised 13% of regular drug users. D.C. Mayor Marion Barry captured on a surveillance camera smoking crack cocaine during a sting operation by the FBI and D.C. police. Anti-drug legislation over time has also displayed an apparent racial bias. University of Minnesota professor and social justice author Michael Tonry writes, the war on drugs foreseeably and unnecessarily blighted the lives of hundreds and thousands of young disadvantaged black Americans and undermined decades of effort to improve the life chances of members of the urban black underclass. In 1968, President Lyndon B. Johnson decided that the government needed to make an effort to curtail the social unrest that blanketed the country at the time. He decided to focus his efforts on illegal drug use, an approach which was in line with expert opinion on the subject at the time. In the 1960s, it was believed that at least half of the crime in the U.S. was drug-related, and this number grew as high as 90% in the next decade 88 he created the Reorganization Plan of 1968 which merged the Bureau of Narcotics and the Bureau of Drug Abuse to form the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs within the Department of Justice 89 The belief during this time about drug use was summarized by journalist Max Lerner in his work America as a Civilization, 1957. As a case in point we may take the known fact of the prevalence of reefer and dope addiction in Negro areas. This is essentially explained in terms of poverty, slum living, and broken families, yet it would be easy to show the lack of drug addiction among other ethnic groups where the same conditions apply. Richard Nixon became president in 1969, and did not back away from the anti-drug precedent set by Johnson. 
Nixon began orchestrating drug raids nationwide to improve his watchdog reputation. Lois B. DeFleur, a social historian who studied drug arrests during this period in Chicago, stated that, police administrators indicated they were making the kind of arrests the public wanted. Additionally, some of Nixon's newly created drug enforcement agencies would resort to illegal practices to make arrests as they tried to meet public demand for arrest numbers. From 1972 to 1973, the Office of Drug Abuse and Law Enforcement performed 6,000 drug arrests in 18 months, the majority of the arrested black. The next two presidents, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter, responded with programs that were essentially a continuation of their predecessors. Shortly after Ronald Reagan became president in 1981, he delivered a speech on the topic. Reagan announced, We're taking down the surrender flag that has flown over so many drug efforts, we're running up a battle flag. Then, driven by the 1986 cocaine overdose of black basketball star Len Bias Dubious, discuss Reagan was able to pass the Anti-Drug Abuse Act through Congress. This legislation appropriated an additional $1.7 billion to fund the war on drugs. More importantly, it established 29 new, mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenses. In the entire history of the country up until that point, the legal system had only seen 55 minimum sentences in total. A major stipulation of the new sentencing rules included different mandatory minimums for powder and crack cocaine. At the time of the bill, there was public debate as to the difference in potency and effect of powder cocaine, generally used by whites, and crack cocaine, generally used by blacks, with many believing that crack was substantially more powerful and addictive. Crack and powder cocaine are closely related chemicals, crack being a smokable, free base form of powdered cocaine hydrochloride which produces a shorter, more intense high while using less of the drug. This method is more cost effective, and therefore more prevalent on the inner city streets, while powder cocaine remains more popular in white suburbia. The Reagan administration began shoring public opinion against crack, encouraging DIA official Robert Putnam to play up the harmful effects of the drug. Stories of crack whores and crack babies became commonplace, by 1986, time had declared crack the issue of the year. Riding the wave of public fervor, Reagan established much harsher sentencing for crack cocaine, handing down stiffer felony penalties for much smaller amounts of the drug. Reagan protege and former Vice President George H.W. Bush was next to occupy the Oval Office, and the drug policy under his watch held true to his political background. Bush maintained the hard line drawn by his predecessor and former boss, increasing narcotics regulation when the first national drug control strategy was issued by the Office of National Drug Control in 1989. The next three presidents, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, continued this trend, maintaining the war on drugs as they inherited it upon taking office. During this time of passivity by the federal government, it was the states that initiated controversial legislation in the war on drugs. Racial bias manifested itself in the states through such controversial policies as the stop-and-frisk police practices in New York City and the three-strikes felony laws began in California in 1994. In August 2010, President Obama signed the Fair Sentencing Act into law that dramatically reduced the 100-to-1 sentencing disparity between powder and crack cocaine, which disproportionately affected minorities. Commonly used illegal drugs Commonly used illegal drugs include heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, and marijuana. Heroin is an opiate that is highly addictive. If caught selling or possessing heroin, a perpetrator can be charged with a felony and face two, four years in prison and could be fined to a maximum of $20,000. Crystal meth is composed of methamphetamine hydrochloride. It is marketed as either a white powder or in a solid, 
rock, form. The possession of crystal meth can result in a punishment varying from a fine to a jail sentence. As with other drug crimes, sentencing length may increase depending on the amount of the drug found in the possession of the defendant. Cocaine possession is illegal across the U.S., with the cheaper crack cocaine incurring even greater penalties. Having possession is when the accused knowingly has it on their person, or in a backpack or purse. The possession of cocaine with no prior conviction, for the first offense, the person will be sentenced to a maximum of one year in prison or fined $1,000, or both. If the person has a prior conviction, whether it is a narcotic or cocaine, they will be sentenced to two years in prison, a $2,500 fine, or both. With two or more convictions of possession prior to this present offense, they can be sentenced to 90 days in prison along with a $5,000 fine. Marijuana is the most popular illegal drug worldwide. The punishment for possession of it is less than for the possession of cocaine or heroin. In some U.S. states, the drug is legal. Over 80 million Americans have tried marijuana. The Criminal Defense Lawyer article claims that, depending on the age of person and how much the person has been caught for possession, they will be fined and could plea bargain into going to a treatment program versus going to prison. In each state the convictions differ along with how much marijuana they have on their person. United States Foreign Policy and Covert Military Activities Conflicts in the War on Drugs Some scholars have claimed that the phrase War on Drugs is propaganda cloaking an extension of earlier military or paramilitary operations. Others have argued that large amounts of drug war foreign aid money, training, and equipment actually goes to fighting leftist insurgencies and is often provided to groups who themselves are involved in large-scale narco-trafficking, such as corrupt members of the Colombian military. War in Vietnam From 1963 to the end of the Vietnam War in 1975, marijuana usage became common among U.S. soldiers in non-combat situations. Some servicemen also used heroin. Many of the servicemen ended the heroin use after returning to the United States but came home addicted. In 1971, the U.S. military conducted a study of drug use among American servicemen and women. It found that daily usage rates for drugs on a worldwide basis were as low as 2%. However, in the spring of 1971, two congressmen released an alarming report alleging that 15% of the servicemen in Vietnam were addicted to heroin. Marijuana use was also common in Vietnam. Soldiers who used drugs had more disciplinary problems. The frequent drug use had become an issue for the commanders in Vietnam, in 1971 it was estimated that 30,000 servicemen were addicted to drugs, most of them to heroin. From 1971 on, therefore, returning servicemen were required to take a mandatory heroin test. Servicemen who tested positive upon returning from Vietnam were not allowed to return home until they had passed the test with a negative result. The program also offered a treatment for heroin addicts 105. Elliot Boren's article The U.S. Military Needs Its Speed published in Wired on February 10, 2003 reports. But the Defense Department, which distributed millions of amphetamine tablets to troops during World War II, Vietnam and the Gulf War, soldiers on, insisting that they are not only harmless but beneficial. In a news conference held in connection with Schmidt and Umbach's Article 32 hearing, Dr. Pete Dimitri, an Air Force physician and a pilot, claimed that the Air Force has used, dexedrine, safely for 60 years with no known speed-related mishaps. The need for speed, Dimitri added is a life-and-death issue for our military. Operation Intercept One of the first anti-drug efforts in the realm of foreign policy was President Nixon's Operation Intercept, announced in September 1969, targeted at reducing the amount of cannabis entering the United States from Mexico.
The effort began with an intense inspection crackdown that resulted in an almost shutdown of cross-border traffic. Because the burden on border crossings was controversial in border states, the effort only lasted 20 days. Operation Just Cause The U.S. military invasion of Panama in 1989 On December 20, 1989, the United States invaded Panama as part of Operation Just Cause, which involved 25,000 American troops. General Manuel Noriega, head of the government of Panama, had been giving military assistance to Contra groups in Nicaragua at the request of the U.S. which, in exchange, tolerated his drug trafficking activities, which they had known about since the 1960s. When the Drug Enforcement Administration, DIA, tried to indict Noriega in 1971, the CIA prevented them from doing so. The CIA, which was then directed by future President George H.W. Bush, provided Noriega with hundreds of thousands of dollars per year as payment for his work in Latin America. When CIA pilot Eugene Hazenfuss was shot down over Nicaragua by the Sandinistas, documents aboard the plane revealed many of the CIA's activities in Latin America, and the CIA's connections with Noriega became a public relations liability for the U.S. government, which finally allowed the DIA to indict him for drug trafficking, after decades of tolerating his drug operations. Operation Just Cause whose purpose was to capture Noriega and overthrow his government, Noriega found temporary asylum in the papal nuncio, and surrendered to U.S. soldiers on January 3, 1990 he was sentenced by a court in Miami to 45 years in prison. Plan Colombia United States Involvement in Colombia As part of its Plan Colombia program, the United States government currently provides hundreds of millions of dollars per year of military aid, training, and equipment to Colombia, to fight left-wing guerrillas such as the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, FARC-EP, which has been accused of being involved in drug trafficking. Private U.S. corporations have signed contracts to carry out anti-drug activities as part of Plan Colombia. Dyncorp, the largest private company involved, was among those contracted by the State Department, while others signed contracts with the Defense Department. Colombian military personnel have received extensive counterinsurgency training from U.S. military and law enforcement agencies, including the School of Americas, SOA. Author Grace Livingstone has stated that more Colombian SOA graduates have been implicated in human rights abuses than currently known SOA graduates from any other country. All of the commanders of the brigades highlighted in a 2001 Human Rights Watch report on Colombia were graduates of the SOA, including the 3 Brigade in Valle del Cauca, where the 2001 Alto Naya massacre occurred. Us trained officers have been accused of being directly or indirectly involved in many atrocities during the 1990s, including the massacre of Trujillo and the 1997 Maparipan massacre. In 2000, the Clinton administration initially waived all but one of the human rights conditions attached to Plan Colombia, considering such aid as crucial to national security at the time. The efforts of U.S. and Colombian governments have been criticized for focusing on fighting leftist guerrillas in southern regions without applying enough pressure on right-wing paramilitaries and continuing drug smuggling operations in the north of the country. Human Rights Watch, congressional committees and other entities have documented the existence of connections between members of the Colombian military and the AUC, which the U.S. government has listed as a terrorist group, and that Colombian military personnel have committed human rights abuses which would make them ineligible for U.S. aid under current laws. In 2010, the Washington Office on Latin America concluded that both Plan Colombia and the Colombian government's security strategy came at a high cost in lives and resources, only did part of the job, are yielding diminishing returns and have left important institutions weaker. A 2014 report by the RAND Corporation, 
which was issued to analyze viable strategies for the Mexican drug war considering successes experienced in Colombia, noted. Between 1999 and 2002, the United States gave Colombia $2.04 billion in aid, 81% of which was for military purposes, placing Colombia just below Israel and Egypt among the largest recipients of U.S. military assistance. Colombia increased its defense spending from 3.2% of gross domestic product, GDP, in 2000 to 4.19% in 2005. Overall, the results were extremely positive. Greater spending on infrastructure and social programs helped the Colombian government increase its political legitimacy, while improved security forces were better able to consolidate control over large swaths of the country previously overrun by insurgents and drug cartels. It also notes that, Plan Colombia has been widely hailed as a success, and some analysts believe that, by 2010, Colombian security forces had finally gained the upper hand once and for all. Mexico is scheduled to receive 1.6 billion US dollars in equipment and strategic support from the United States through the Merida Initiative. Merida Initiative The Merida Initiative is a security cooperation between the United States and the government of Mexico and the countries of Central America. It was approved on June 30, 2008, and its stated aim is combating the threats of drug trafficking and transnational crime. The Merida Initiative appropriated $1.4 billion in a three-year commitment, 2008-2010, to the Mexican government for military and law enforcement training and equipment, as well as technical advice and training to strengthen the national justice systems. The Merida Initiative targeted many very important government officials, but it failed to address the thousands of Central Americans who had to flee their countries due to the danger they faced every day because of the war on drugs. There is still not any type of plan that addresses these people. No weapons are included in the plan. Aerial Herbicide Application The United States regularly sponsors the spraying of large amounts of herbicides such as glyphosate over the jungles of Central and South America as part of its drug eradication programs. Environmental consequences resulting from aerial fumigation have been criticized as detrimental to some of the world's most fragile ecosystems 122 The same aerial fumigation practices are further credited with causing health problems in local populations 123. U.S. Operations in Honduras In 2012, the U.S. sent DIA agents to Honduras to assist security forces in counter-narcotics operations. Honduras has been a major stop for drug traffickers, who use small planes and landing strips hidden throughout the country to transport drugs. The U.S. government made agreements with several Latin American countries to share intelligence and resources to counter the drug trade. DIA agents working with other U.S. agencies such as the State Department, the CBP, and Joint Task Force Bravo, assisted Honduras troops in conducting raids on traffickers' sites of Operation 124. Public Support and Opposition in the United States and Mexico An American domestic government propaganda poster circa 2000 concerning cannabis in the United States. The war on drugs has been a highly contentious issue since its inception. A poll on October 2, 2008, found that three in four Americans believed that the war on drugs was failing. In 2014, a Pew Research Center poll found more than six in ten Americans state that state governments moving away from mandatory prison terms for drug law violations is a good thing, while three out of ten Americans say these policy changes are a bad thing. This is a substantial shift from the same poll question since 2001. In 2014 a Pew Research Center poll found that 67% of Americans feel that a movement towards treatment for drugs like cocaine and heroin is better versus the 26% who feel that prosecution is the better route. In 2018, 
a Rasmussen report poll found that less than 10% of Americans think that the war on drugs is being won and that 75% found that Americans believe that America is not winning the war on drugs. Mexican citizens, unlike American citizens, support the current measures their government were taking against drug cartels in the war on drugs. A Pew Research Center poll in 2010 found that 80% supported the current use of the army in the war on drugs to combat drug traffickers with about 55% saying that they have been making progress in the war 129 a year later in 2011 a Pew Research Center poll uncovered that 71% of Mexicans find that illegal drugs are a very big problem in their country. 77% of Mexicans also found that drug cartels and the violence associated with them are as well a big challenge for Mexico. The poll also found that the percentages believing that that illegal drugs and violence related to the cartel were higher in the north with 87% for illegal drug use and 94% cartel-related violence being a problem. This compared to the other locations, South Mexico City and the greater area of Mexico City, and Central Mexico which are all about 18% or lower than the north on illegal drug use being a problem for the country. These perspective areas are also lower than the North by 19% or more on the issue of drug cartel-related violence being an issue for the country. In 2013 a Pew Research Center poll found that 74% of Mexican citizens would support the training of their police and military, the poll also found that another 55% would support the supplying of weapons and financial aid. Though the poll indicates a support of U.S. aid, 59% were against troops on the ground by the U.S. military. Also in 2013 Pew Research Center found in a poll that 56% of Mexican citizens believe that the United States and Mexico are both to blame for drug violence in Mexico. In that same poll 20% believe that the United States is solely to blame and 17% believe that Mexico is solely to blame. At a meeting in Guatemala in 2012, three former presidents from Guatemala, Mexico and Colombia said that the war on drugs had failed and that they would propose a discussion on alternatives, including decriminalization, at the summit of the Americas in April of that year. Guatemalan President Otto Pérez Molina said that the war on drugs was exacting too high a price on the lives of Central Americans and that it was time to end the taboo on discussing decriminalization. At the summit, the government of Colombia pushed for the most far-reaching change to drugs policy since the war on narcotics was declared by Nixon four decades prior, citing the catastrophic effects it had had in Colombia. Several critics have compared the wholesale incarceration of the dissenting minority of drug users to the wholesale incarceration of other minorities in history. Psychiatrist Thomas Zass, for example, wrote in 1997 over the past 30 years, we have replaced the medical political persecution of illegal sex users, perverts and psychopaths, with the even more ferocious medical political persecution of illegal drug users. Socio-economic effects. Creation of a permanent underclass. Circa 1 million people are incarcerated every year in the United States for drug law violations. Penalties for drug crimes among American youth almost always involve permanent or semi-permanent removal from opportunities for education, strip them of voting rights, and later involve creation of criminal records which make employment more difficult. Thus, some authors maintain that the war on drugs has resulted in the creation of a permanent underclass of people who have few educational or job opportunities, often as a result of being punished for drug offenses which in turn have resulted from attempts to earn a living in spite of having no education or job opportunities. Costs to taxpayers According to a 2008 study published by Harvard economist Jeffrey A. Myron, the annual savings on enforcement and incarceration costs from the legalization of drugs would amount to roughly $41.3 billion, with $25.7 billion being saved among the states and over $15.6 billion accrued for the federal government. 
Myron further estimated at least $46.7 billion in tax revenue based on rates comparable to those on tobacco and alcohol, $8.7 billion from marijuana, $32.6 billion from cocaine and heroin, remainder from other drugs. Low taxation in Central American countries has been credited with weakening the region's response in dealing with drug traffickers. Many cartels, especially Los Zetas have taken advantage of the limited resources of these nations. 2010 tax revenue in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, composed just 13.53% of GDP. As a comparison, in Chile and the US, taxes were 18.6% and 26.9% of GDP respectively. However, direct taxes on income are very hard to enforce and in some cases tax evasion is seen as a national pastime. Impact on growers the status of coca and coca growers has become an intense political issue in several countries, including Colombia and particularly Bolivia, where the president, Evo Morales, a former coca growers union leader, has promised to legalize the traditional cultivation and use of coca. Indeed, legalization efforts have yielded some successes under the Morales administration when combined with aggressive and targeted eradication efforts. The country saw a 12 to 13 percent decline in coca cultivation 140 in 2011 under Morales, who has used coca growers federations to ensure compliance with the law rather than providing a primary role for security forces. The coca eradication policy has been criticized for its negative impact on the livelihood of coca growers in South America. In many areas of South America the coca leaf has traditionally been chewed and used in tea and for religious, medicinal, and nutritional purposes by locals. For this reason many insist that the illegality of traditional coca cultivation is unjust. In many areas the US government and military has forced the eradication of coca without providing for any meaningful alternative crop for farmers, and has additionally destroyed many of their food or market crops, leaving them starving and destitute. Allegations of US government assistance in drug trafficking the CIA, DIA, State Department, and several other U.S. government agencies have been alleged to have relations with various groups which are involved in drug trafficking. CIA and Contra Cocaine Trafficking Senator John Kerry's 1988 U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations report on Contra drug links concludes that members of the U.S. State Department who provided support for the Contras are involved in drug trafficking, and elements of the Contras themselves knowingly receive financial and material assistance from drug traffickers. The report further states that the Contra drug links include, payments to drug traffickers by the U.S. State Department of Funds authorized by the Congress for humanitarian assistance to the Contras, in some cases after the traffickers had been indicted by federal law enforcement agencies on drug charges, in others while traffickers were under active investigation by these same agencies. In 1996, journalist Gary Webb published reports in the San Jose Mercury News, and later in his book Dark Alliance, detailing how Contras, had been involved in distributing crack cocaine into Los Angeles whilst receiving money from the CIA citation needed Contras used money from drug trafficking to buy weapons citation needed. Webb's premise regarding the US government connection was initially attacked at the time by the media. It is now widely accepted that Webb's main assertion of government knowledge of drug operations, and collaboration with and protection of known drug traffickers was correct failed verification in 1998. CIA Inspector General Frederick Hitz published a two-volume report that while seemingly refuting Webb's claims of knowledge and collaboration in its conclusions did not deny them in its body citation needed Hitz went on to admit CIA improprieties in the affair in testimony to a House Congressional Committee. There has been a reversal amongst mainstream media of its position on Webb's work, with acknowledgement made of his contribution to exposing a scandal it had ignored. 
heroin trafficking operations involving the CIA, U.S. Navy, and Sicilian Mafia. According to Rodney Campbell, an editorial assistant to Nelson Rockefeller, during World War II, the United States Navy, concerned that strikes and labor disputes in U.S. eastern shipping ports would disrupt wartime logistics, released the mobster Lucky Luciano from prison, and collaborated with him to help the Mafia take control of those ports. Labor union members were terrorized and murdered by Mafia members as a means of preventing labor unrest and ensuring smooth shipping of supplies to Europe. According to Alexander Coburn and Jeffrey St. Clair, in order to prevent Communist Party members from being elected in Italy following World War II, the CIA worked closely with the Sicilian Mafia, protecting them and assisting in their worldwide heroin smuggling operations. The Mafia was in conflict with leftist groups and was involved in assassinating, torturing, and beating leftist political organizers. Efficacy of the United States' War on Drugs USS Rance, FFG-46, attempts to put out a fire set by drug smugglers trying to escape and destroy evidence. External Video A Conversation with President Obama and David Simon, The Wire Creator, Discussing the Wire and the War on Drugs, The White House In 1986, the U.S. Defense Department funded a two-year study by the Rand Corporation, which found that the use of the armed forces to interdict drugs coming into the United States would have little or no effect on cocaine traffic and might, in fact, raise the profits of cocaine cartels and manufacturers. The 175-page study, Sealing the Borders, The Effects of Increased Military Participation in Drug Interdiction, was prepared by seven researchers, mathematicians, and economists at the National Defense Research Institute, a branch of the RAND, and was released in 1988. The study noted that seven prior studies in the past nine years, including one by the Center for Naval Research and the Office of Technology Assessment, had come to similar conclusions. Interdiction efforts, using current armed forces resources, would have almost no effect on cocaine importation into the United States, the report concluded. During the early to mid-1990s, the Clinton administration ordered and funded a major cocaine policy study, again by RAND. The RAND Drug Policy Research Center study concluded that $3 billion should be switched from federal and local law enforcement to treatment. The report said that treatment is the cheapest way to cut drug use, stating that drug treatment is 23 times more effective than the supply-side war on drugs. The National Research Council Committee on Data and Research for Policy on Illegal Drugs published its findings in 2001 on the efficacy of the drug war. The NRC committee found that existing studies on efforts to address drug usage and smuggling, from U.S. military operations to eradicate coca fields in Colombia, to domestic drug treatment centers, have all been inconclusive, if the programs have been evaluated at all, the existing drug use monitoring systems are strikingly inadequate to support the full range of policy decisions that the nation must make. It is unconscionable for this country to continue to carry out a public policy of this magnitude and cost without any way of knowing whether and to what extent it is having the desired effect. The study, though not ignored by the press, was ignored by top-level policymakers, leading committee chair Charles Mansky to conclude, as one observer notes, that the drug war has no interest in its own results. In mid-1995, the U.S. government tried to reduce the supply of methamphetamine precursors to disrupt the market of this drug. According to a 2009 study, this effort was successful, but its effects were largely temporary. During alcohol prohibition, the period from 1920 to 1933, alcohol use initially fell but began to increase as early as 1922. It has been extrapolated that even if prohibition had not been repealed in 1933, alcohol consumption would have quickly surpassed pre-prohibition levels. 
One argument against the war on drugs is that it uses similar measures as prohibition and is no more effective. In the six years from 2000 to 2006, the U.S. spent $4.7 billion on Plan Colombia, an effort to eradicate coca production in Colombia. The main result of this effort was to shift coca production into more remote areas and force other forms of adaptation. The overall acreage cultivated for coca in Colombia at the end of the six years was found to be the same, after the U.S. Drug Czar's office announced a change in measuring methodology in 2005 and included new areas in its surveys. Cultivation in the neighboring countries of Peru and Bolivia increased, some would describe this effect like squeezing a balloon. Richard Davenport Hines, in his book The Pursuit of Oblivion, criticized the efficacy of the war on drugs by pointing out that 10-15% of illicit heroin and 30% of illicit cocaine is intercepted. Drug traffickers have gross profit margins of up to 300%. At least 75% of illicit drug shipments would have to be intercepted before the traffickers' profits were hurt. Alberto Fujimori, president of Peru from 1990 to 2000, described U.S. foreign drug policy as failed on grounds that for 10 years, there has been a considerable sum invested by the Peruvian government and another sum on the part of the American government, and this has not led to a reduction in the supply of coca leaf offered for sale. Rather, in the 10 years from 1980 to 1990, it grew tenfold. At least 500 economists, including Nobel laureates Milton Friedman, George Okerloff, and Vernon L. Smith, have noted that reducing the supply of marijuana without reducing the demand causes the price, and hence the profits of marijuana sellers, to go up, according to the laws of supply and demand 159 the increased profits encourage the producers to produce more drugs despite the risks, providing a theoretical explanation for why attacks on drug supply have failed to have any lasting effect. The aforementioned economists published an open letter to President George W. Bush stating we urge, the country to commence an open and honest debate about marijuana prohibition. At a minimum, this debate will force advocates of current policy to show that prohibition has benefits sufficient to justify the cost to taxpayers, foregone tax revenues and numerous ancillary consequences that result from marijuana prohibition. U.S. yearly overdose deaths, and the drugs involved. There were 70,200 drug overdose deaths overall in 2017 in the USA. The declaration from the World Forum Against Drugs, 2008 state that a balanced policy of drug abuse prevention, education, treatment, law enforcement, research, and supply reduction provides the most effective platform to reduce drug abuse and its associated harms and call on governments to consider demand reduction as one of their first priorities in the fight against drug abuse. Despite over $7 billion spent annually towards arresting and prosecuting nearly 800,000 people across the country for marijuana offenses in 2005 citation needed, FBI Uniform Crime Reports, the federally funded monitoring the future survey reports about 85% of high school seniors find marijuana easy to obtain. That figure has remained virtually unchanged since 1975, never dropping below 82.7% in three decades of national surveys. The Drug Enforcement Administration states that the number of users of marijuana in the U.S. declined between 2000 and 2005 even with many states passing new medical marijuana laws making access easier, though usage rates remain higher than they were in the 1990s according to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. ONT stated in April 2011 that there has been a 46% drop in cocaine use among young adults over the past five years, and a 65% drop in the rate of people testing positive for cocaine in the workplace since 2006. At the same time, a 2007 study found that up to 35% of college undergraduates used stimulants not prescribed to them. 
A 2013 study found that prices of heroin, cocaine, and cannabis had decreased from 1990 to 2007, but the purity of these drugs had increased during the same time. According to data collected by the Federal Bureau of Prisons 45.3% of all criminal charges were drug-related and 25.5% of sentences for all charges last 5 to 10 years. Furthermore, Non-whites make up 41.4% of the federal prison system's population and over half are under the age of 40. The Bureau of Justice Statistics contends that over 80% of all drug-related charges are for possession rather than the sale or manufacture of drugs. In 2015 the U.S. government spent over $25 billion on supply reduction, while allocating only $11 billion for demand reduction. Supply reduction includes, interdiction, eradication, and law enforcement, demand reduction includes, education, prevention, and treatment. The war on drugs is often called a policy failure. Legality The legality of the war on drugs has been challenged on four main grounds in the U.S. 1. It is argued that drug prohibition, as presently implemented, violates the substantive due process doctrine in that its benefits do not justify the encroachments on rights that are supposed to be guaranteed by the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. On July 27, 2011, U.S. District Judge Mary S. Scriven ruled that Florida's legislation purporting to eliminate intent as an element of the crime of drug possession was unconstitutional. Commentators explain the ruling in terms of due process. 2. Freedom of religious conscience legally allows some, for example, members of the Native American Church, to use peyote with definite spiritual or religious motives. The sacramental use of dimethyltryptamine in the form of ayahuasca is also allowed for members of Uniao du Vegetal. The Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment implies no requirement for someone to be affiliated to an official church, therefore leaving some ambiguity. 3. It has been argued that the Commerce Clause means that the power to regulate drug use should be state law not federal law. However, Supreme Court rulings go against this argument because production and consumption in one locality will change the price in another locality because it affects the overall supply and demand for the product and interstate price in a globalized, market economy. 4. The inequity of prosecuting the war on certain drugs but not alcohol or tobacco has also been called into question. Alternatives? Several authors believe that the United States federal and state governments have chosen wrong methods for combating the distribution of illicit substances. Aggressive, heavy-handed enforcement funnels individuals through courts and prisons, instead of treating the cause of the addiction, the focus of government efforts has been on punishment. By making drugs illegal rather than regulating them, the war on drugs creates a highly profitable black market. Jefferson Fish has edited scholarly collections of articles offering a wide variety of public health-based and rights-based alternative drug policies. In the year 2000, the United States drug control budget reached $18.4 billion, nearly half of which was spent financing law enforcement while only one-sixth was spent on treatment. In the year 2003, 53% of the requested drug control budget was for enforcement, 29% for treatment, and 18% for prevention. The state of New York, in particular, designated 17% of its budget towards substance abuse-related spending. Of that, a mere 1% was put towards prevention, treatment, and research. In a survey taken by Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, it was found that substance abusers that remain in treatment longer are less likely to resume their former drug habits. Of the people that were studied, 66% were cocaine users. After experiencing long-term inpatient treatment, only 22% returned to the use of cocaine. Treatment had reduced the number of cocaine abusers by two-thirds. 
By spending the majority of its money on law enforcement, the federal government had underestimated the true value of drug treatment facilities and their benefit towards reducing the number of addicts in the U.S. In 2004 the federal government issued the National Drug Control Strategy. It supported programs designed to expand treatment options, enhance treatment delivery, and improve treatment outcomes. For example, the strategy provided SAMHSA with a $100.6 million grant to put towards their Access to Recovery ATR, initiative. ATR is a program that provides vouchers to addicts to provide them with the means to acquire clinical treatment or recovery support. The project's goals are to expand capacity, support client choice, and increase the array of faith-based and community-based providers for clinical treatment and recovery support services. The ATR program will also provide a more flexible array of services based on the individual's treatment needs. The 2004 strategy additionally declared a significant $32 million raise in the drug courts program, which provides drug offenders with alternatives to incarceration. As a substitute for imprisonment, drug courts identify substance abusing offenders and place them under strict court monitoring and community supervision, as well as provide them with long-term treatment services. According to a report issued by the National Drug Court Institute, drug courts have a wide array of benefits, with only 16.4% of the nation's drug court graduates rearrested and charged with a felony within one year of completing the program, versus the 44.1% of released prisoners who end up back in prison within one year. Additionally, enrolling an addict in a drug court program costs much less than incarcerating one in prison. According to the Bureau of Prisons, the fee to cover the average cost of incarceration for federal inmates in 2006 was $24,440. The annual cost of receiving treatment in a drug court program ranges from $900 to $3,500. Drug courts in New York State alone save $2.54 million in incarceration costs. Describing the failure of the war on drugs, New York Times columnist Eduardo Porter noted. Jeffrey Myron, an economist at Harvard who studies drug policy closely, has suggested that legalizing all illicit drugs would produce net benefits to the United States of some $65 billion a year mostly by cutting public spending on enforcement as well as through reduced crime and corruption. A study by analysts at the Rand Corporation, a California research organization, suggested that if marijuana were legalized in California and the drugs spilled from there to other states, Mexican drug cartels would lose about a fifth of their annual income of some $6.5 billion from illegal exports to the United States. Many believe that the war on drugs has been costly and ineffective largely because inadequate emphasis is placed on treatment of addiction. The United States leads the world in both recreational drug usage and incarceration rates. 70% of men arrested in metropolitan areas test positive for an illicit substance, and 54% of all men incarcerated will be repeat offenders. And lastly, let's take a look at the average cost to house inmates in America prison. And please note these are old figures, you can estimate that it's much higher today. This is the reason why private prisons will never go away. The average cost of incarceration in the United States is determined by different methods. It costs anywhere between $20,000 and $40,000 per year to house inmates in federal and state correctional facilities, the considerable spread is due to the criteria used by government agencies and prison system watchdogs. There is consensus, however, on the high cost and burden to taxpayers produced by the U.S. penal system. Calculating Costs Per Inmate According to the U.S. Bureau of Prisons, the average annual cost of incarceration in federal prisons in 2010 was $28,284 per inmate. That cost is reduced at the Federal Community Corrections Centers, 
In 2010 the annual cost was $25,838. According to the California Legislative Analyst's Office, the annual cost of incarceration in the Golden State in 2009 was $47,102 per year. To arrive at this figure, California analysts took into account the cost of security, healthcare, operations, administration, support, and rehabilitation programs. Annual costs per inmate in California have almost doubled since the beginning of the 21st century. Watchdog groups that keep an eye on the American judicial and penal systems often arrive at higher figures than those of the U.S. Bureau of Prisons or state agencies. The reason for this discrepancy is that watchdog groups tend to factor in court costs and other expenditures. The cost of incarceration climbs according to the level of security. The Supermax Federal prison in Colorado spends about $60,000 per year to keep inmates in permanent isolation. The most expensive American prison is located in Cuba, housing an inmate in Guantanamo Bay costs taxpayers approximately $900,000 per year. According to the Vera Institute of Justice, the average cost of housing an inmate in the U.S. was $31,286 in 2012. New York had the highest cost at $31,286 and Kentucky the lowest at $14,603. The Prison Industrial Complex Since the U.S. already has the highest incarceration rate in the world, critics of the American criminal justice system warn that the rising prison costs prove the prison industrial complex theory. The funds allocated to corrections departments across the U.S. take up a significant portion of state budgets. One of the most significant challenges that the prison industrial complex poses to Americans is its systemic nature. The penal system is intrinsically tied to law enforcement and criminal justice, a sudden, sharp reduction in crime and incarceration rates could affect the economy created by the prison industrial complex. All right now, what y'all think about that, huh? Privatized prisons, the three-strike law. And you know, I remember black folks back there when Bill Clinton was off, they used to say that Bill Clinton was the first black president because he blew a, a saxophone wearing dark sunglasses on the Arcelia Hall show. Black folks show love Clinton, but Clinton propagated that three-strike law. Clinton is the reason why so many blacks are locked up in prison today. He ain't the main reason, because as you hear, as you hear from the pod talk, you know, two-strike law, three-strike law, you know, all those laws has been on the books for a long time, but the one that Clinton introduced, and let me tell y'all, some of y'all listen to that thing, Joe Biden was also was a big proponent of, of the three strike law in order to put more more blacks in prison because the whole because if you go back to the whole drug thing right how drugs just destroyed the black community uh, specifically and it was designed to do that from when they brought when when they was trying to run guns down in Nicaragua and 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 and, and Congress and Congress wouldn't Congress wouldn't give uh, uh, Oliver North and Ronald Reagan them the money. To buy guns to ship down in Noriego down there. So what they did was they started shipping drugs into the, in, into the inner city community, especially Los Angeles, California. That's what destroyed California. You know, it was almost like the jobs went away, right? They depressed the communities with, by moving the jobs out of the, you know, out and moving and, 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 and bringing drugs and bringing guns and drugs in. And when somebody can't find a job and no way to support themselves, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to do whatever they can. And, and the thing about it is that without, without even understanding what they're doing, they destroyed their whole community by this, by this poison that was put in the community. That's, all, that's almost like a rat. That's almost like a rat eating some poison, knowing that it's poison, 
but it deported, but then he he but then he go out and he infect other rats with it. So he kill a whole community. He kill a whole community like a, he, he spreads it like a virus. And that's what that drugs was and the guns are that was a virus that was first put into the in the black community. But see the thing about it was it don't become an epidemic until it spreads to other communities outside of the intended communities. That's when that's that's when the red light went off when they said, wait a minute now. We're making all this money from these from these drugs, but then at the same time is that we can lock people up in prison for selling drugs because it's illegal. And then on top of that is we can create uh, uh, clinics to help people get off these drugs that we're coming in because nobody ever looks at what's everybody looks at. They they look at what's in front of them. They look at the drug dealer and they look at the junkies, but they don't look at how this stuff gets into the country. And y'all can see by this little talk, it's just not the United States. I hear people like I'll listen to that guy, one guy, Joe Rogan podcast. He was talking about how crime free New Zealand was and how beautiful New Zealand was. But I understand why New Zealand was so beautiful in the Western world over there. New Zealand has the most privatized prisons. All they people locked up in jail and all they people, they all they people in New Zealand say like they got to do at least two years in jail. Because you heard about the, about the part about New Zealand, how they rotate them out two years and two, you, you get at least two years in jail, you come out and they, they just rotate them and they get $90,000 a year. So every two years they put in citizens, they, they, you go to jail for at least uh, a year and a half, at least a year and a half and they get $90,000. All this stuff is for profit. Like I'll take you on, 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 on another little talk I had. I think the government is great is doing a lot of things, but I think I, I, I think private. Well, no, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I think the private sector is great on doing a lot of things, but there's certain things the private sector shouldn't be doing because the private sector is profit driven. The government is not supposed to be profit driven. The sector is supposed to be dropped profit driven. So in order for the sec the private sector to be profit dri driven, they have to reduce their overhead costs to put more money into their pockets and their shareholder pockets, right? Right? So that so that means they're gonna cut costs everywhere they can. Everywhere they can, they're gonna cut costs to increase their profits. And ain't nothing wrong with that. It's called business. That's not business. I'm not here to hate on privatized prisons. Because it's called a business. That's what it's called. But a business, anything that's privatized, doesn't benefit the company, the business. I mean, that's just like when Reagan turned the mental hospitals, when he, when, he, when he deregulated all that stuff, and the mental houses that the government was maintaining went away. Now you got all these crazy folks everywhere running the street like, like, like the zombie apocalypse. Can't get no help wandering the streets like, you know, like nomads because the private sector could not control costs. Because it was getting too expensive for the private sector to keep them people. Right? And when, and when the private sector was, was, was cutting costs, them people in them crazy houses was getting less quality help. So eventually, a lot of the private crazy houses closed down. And all the people migrated to the streets. And that's what I tell you about. It seems like the government, it don't seem like it, the government isn't doing anything. They outsourcing everything they could. The government is like, it's, it's like right now, we're going through this corona thing, right? 
We, you listen. You, you hear about all the money you spend at least ninety, thirty-four to ninety thousand dollars a year to keep one inmate for selling an ounce of weed, nonviolent crime. You keeping him in jail, right? You he paying anywhere from thirty-four to ninety thousand dollars a year to keep one man in jail, and there's millions of people in jail. But yeah, we don't have no money to fight no coronavirus. We don't have no money to, to pay the CDC to keep people on board to look out for these viruses that's, that's coming. You know, we, 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 don't, we don't have no money to when, when there's a, a virus outbreak in some other country overseas somewhere where, 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 where we can send medical staff over there to help them people. Because when we help the people over there in their country find out about these viruses, that means we're learning about it to better protect America. It's like fighting a war. Don't you rather, won't you rather fight a war that's not on American soil? You'd rather fight a war in the Middle East, right? Let's fight them in the Middle East or in, over there somewhere. Let's not fight them here. But what are we doing right now? We fighting the viruses. We fight a virus on our own land and we shut everything down. When this same virus that was going on in China and West, we, we, we could have we CDC representatives in these other countries over there. Helping them people as they help them. We're learning about this disease. Now we got to shut everything down and now we got to start from ground zero. Start from ground zero. They're trying to find a cure for this thing, which we've been new about, but we cut all the funding to the CDC. But yet we got privatized prisons we paying out to Gugab. This is ridiculous. Y'all understand what I'm saying? We can't pay the CDC to be to, to forelook, to keep people in place and look ahead, to fight diseases in other countries and not diseases over here in our country. Now we fight diseases over here in our country because what we didn't do, we cut the funding. Because we want to maximize profits. Because our president is profit driven. He's like trying to run America like a corporation. Now look, I ain't got nothing against that because my 401k was looking good. But see, now it's not looking good because a lot of people who wanted Trump in there like me, I did because I voted for him. I'm not going to lie to y'all. I voted for him because I thought he would be good for the economy, and he has been good for the economy. But what I'm starting to realize is that right now, a president, a leader, and everybody that we put in Congress, they can't be one-sided. They can't be economic-driven. They have to be a balance because running a country, it requires a balance. You don't have to know about everything but you have to know about enough but, but you have to know about where to find those resources like I was reading this one book on Henry Ford one time you know and Henry Ford got pulled in the court right and when Henry Ford got pulled in the court you know the one uh the guy his accuser was accusing him of not being intelligent and knowing about things well Henry Ford say well he said I got a little black box on my desk and I can press any one of them buttons and so I press a button that person will come running them come run into my office and I can ask them anything I need to know and they have the answer. See, you don't have to know the answer to everything, but you have to put the right people in place who knows the answer where you get the answers for or who can research the answer. That's how a president has to be. He, he can't be just economic driven. You know, he can't be economic driven. You know, he can't be socialist driven. He's got to have a balance of everything and know where to get that information from. See, we so confident, we, 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 like I said, and, and I looked at this privatized prison thing here, and this, and this is just, <coughs> excuse me, 
this situation with this corona thing, all the money that we spending. And then, and then, and then we got pharmaceutical companies. Like I tell you, pharmaceutical companies ain't making no viruses and no cures because there's no profit in it. There's no profit in it. There's no profit in it until until everybody gets sick. And then, and then the pharmaceutical companies can jump in and jack the price up everything and then try to find a cure for it to sell to you. Not to give to you as citizen. The citizens that if, if all the citizens die, it ain't going to be no Ford General Motors. It ain't going to be no bailout for Boeing like I just saw on TV talking about the president bailing out Boeing. It ain't going to be no bailout for Boeing. Because it ain't going to be no people at Boeing, Boeing, Boeing yet to, to the building thing. They're all going to be sick from that corona thing. You can't protect your citizens, your citizens, your citizens are your wealth. Your citizens are your commodity. We are all commodities. You a commodity, I'm a commodity. When they when they when they lock when they lock us, when they lock folks up in jail, that's a commodity. Because they getting paid for keeping that person locked up. When I go to work, I'm a commodity. I'm getting paid to be there. We are valuable only as a commodity. And y'all know that commodities ain't valuable too long because commodities get 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 old and they break. And sometimes you just discard commodities and get new ones. That's why you let other foreign people in the country. And you need foreign people coming to come into the country. You need an influx of various people into the country. Like I was looking, I don't mean to change subject. Like I was saying, saying everything. Maybe our president should have took some of that uh, wall, that money that he's going to build that wall with between Mexico and America and fight the coronavirus with it. It's just ridiculous. Y'all heard the pie talk. All the money. Not just the United States, but other countries too. See, privatized prison just ain't an American thing. Even 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 in New even in, in uh was it was it England or Canada, one of those countries over there, where I, I think I think it was well, yeah, I, think, I think it was I think it was New Zealand. Or maybe it was Australia. When when they had to correct the, the privatized prison down there, they had fight clubs in there. They had fight clubs in the prison. Wouldn't even investigate it. When they, when, they, when they finally investigated, the government shut the prison down, turned it back over to the private sector, charged the company $8 million, but then turned around and built another prison and gave, gave the private contractor that contract over the new prison. It's, it's all about people being fed. It's all about people being fed. Nobody looking out for the private folks no more. And that what just makes me upset when I look at this privatized prison thing, and now we're going through this corona thing, how no money is being spent to pick, look out for the people. We could have had a virus. Look, man, we sending people to the moon. We trying to right now get the, <coughs> we spending millions of dollars, billions of dollars to, to, to pay Elon Musk them and them folks to, to shoot stuff up to that international rocket station up there in, in lower, lower orbit. We spending money, the taxpayers' money is being spent on that. We sending rockets up there to, to, to lower space. We building rockets, talking about going to, uh, uh, what that place, Mars? I don't know why the hell they want to go to Mars. You know, we spend all this money doing electric cars. We spend all this money on all this technology, all this stuff. And we got no money to fight a dang old virus. We, we didn't have no money. Not so much to fight a virus, but we didn't have no money to invest in our health sector, the CDC, the scientists, to stay on board 24-7 every day of the year to watch out for stuff like this. We can't pay them. We cut funding to them. 
But 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 we give funding. We can go we we can go on TV and and and, and Congress can vote on a hundred billion dollars to fight the coronavirus. You spend a hundred million dollars, and you and believe me, if the Congress is gonna spend a hundred billion dollars to fight the coronavirus, that means you might as well triple that. It's probably gonna be about six billion when they get six hundred billion when they get done. Stuff a hundred billion when they get done when they get done mismanagement and everybody get their cut. When you when we could have been paying somebody less than six billion dollars to have to have staff at the CDC funded in place to watch out for things like this, where we can fight it in somebody else's country instead of this country, that don't make any sense to me. And I ain't no, I'm not no smart fella. I got a Louisiana education, but yet we're spending <coughs> thousands of dollars to keep somebody in jail. For a marijuana stick. Now look, violent crimes, when you kill somebody, or you rape somebody, okay, I can see folks like that. But not in a privatized prison. It's got to be a government government on government on prison. Now like the one prison that they 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 they, 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 they talked about to where the security in the prison is in the private sector private sector hands, meaning that the guards works for the state. But but contracted out is like the medical, janitorial, and stuff like that. The, 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 the non-essentials when dealing with the inmates. I can see contracting that stuff out, the management of diff, those areas. You can cut costs, you can manage the private sector can do that real good. A, a contractor manager. That's like a facility manager, a contract facility manager. Right? Subcontract. I can understand that. But the main thing that they should be in charge of is working with the prisoners, is controlling the prisoners, is, is, is hands on with the prisoners. Because the state don't have, it's not, it's not in it for profits. The state don't have to cut costs in dealing with no inmates. I had no problem with that. My problem is all this money we're spending on all these things that we, the, Privatized prisoners are getting so rich because of this three strike law. And if y'all notice, they're 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 extending the law. You can go to jail for anything. This means I you you get out there and spend on the sidewalk and they take you to jail for. And if you get in front of the wrong judge, he gonna sentence you to at least do six months or ninety days in jail. Now they know once you get in jail. Now they know once you get in jail, there's chances you may not get out. Because see, you in jail with some wolves, some lions, and tigers, and bears. So you get yourself in the in, you go to jail for about six months, you may have to end up protecting yourself. And in protecting yourself, you may hurt somebody. And when you hurt somebody in jail, now your sentence has been extended, like the podcast I heard about this one fella. He had he he he, he got he, he got less than one year in jail, ended up doing seven years in jail. Because he had to defend himself in jail. So they know once they get you in the system, even for six months or three months or maybe even a week or a weekend, them guards send somebody at you and you have to defend yourself. And now that you go, you you, you hurt somebody in jail, so now you get tagged, so now they got you. And in, and it's and it's in the guards' best interest. Privatized prison work for the guards work for privatized prisons. They have to keep their job. So it's in their best interest to make sure that they have a steady flow 
of commodities. And it's plain and simple. Now look, now I'm going to end this little part talk here before I get carried away too much. Because I want y'all to go back and listen to this, this little part talk a little bit more. And y'all listen to these numbers. Y'all listen to this thing. Y'all listen to uh, the three strike law. Y'all listen to war on drugs. How dumb drugs just destroy communities. Because they couldn't stop it. Because it's like Wi-Fi. It was too much money. Too many people getting paid. They'll never make any sense. How can you want to go and lock that little drug dealer up on the corner, or you want to stop that drug dealer that's trafficking down the highway? You want to stop him, but he had to pick up all them pounds from somewhere. There's no poppy fields in, in the United States. If you want to stop something, you stop. You stop the source. You mean tell me that United States, we, all technology, we got, we don't know when there's planes in the, in the United States. I don't care if they're flying high, low, underneath the water. We can't tell that. Huh? We can't tell that. All technology we got. I'm sorry, you're right. We ain't got that much technology because we can't even, we can't even fight Corona. We can do all these other things, but we can't fight Corona. We got no money to fight Corona. Shutting down the whole country. But let me tell y'all something before I go. And it's just my thought. Something else is going on. I'm telling y'all. Something else is going on. Shutting down this country could like they doing could could just be a test, a prelude to something else. Something else is going on. Shutting the country down, because like I say, you know, could be the, 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 the interest rate. Could be something going on between them and China. Something that's going on, I'm telling y'all. The tariff war. My next little pot talk probably going to be on tariffs. How tariffs dictate all the stuff that's going on. All the money that we spending and nothing on to help the people. I mean, I'm looking at this prison thing and all the strong men and women is in jail. I'm looking around here today and I'm seeing men that act like little gals. I'm seeing little gals that act like men. I'm seeing TV on TV and it ain't, it ain't no boy and girl. It's boy and boy. Jane and Jane. We locking up strong people. Strong people. And we out here now, and I'm looking at what we have out here now. We just got just some sensitive people. It's just strange to me, and I never thought I'd see this in my lifetime. I just... Everything that's so acceptable, that just that just ain't my figure to be right. You can't watch TV without some two boys, two boys kissing, or two gals hugged up. Even on commercials, when they say you something, they gotta have two two boys and a girls, two boys and a boys hugged up. I'm sitting here watching watching HGTV, House Hunters, House Hunters in Tampa. Two boys. What kind of stuff is that? 
And you showing this stuff, you propagating this stuff. But you locking strong men up. You locking strong women up. You charging taxpayers thousands of dollars. And they talking and they, and they want to get on Bernie Sanders about uh, college tuition, about every kid going to school to college for free. We spending anywhere from thirty four to ninety thousand dollars a year to keep people locked up. That ain't learning nothing but trying to survive every day in that system. Now again, what I'm talking about right now, I'm not saying private prisons prisons are wrong because capitalist society you you gonna make money how you gonna how you gotta make money. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the sense of it all. We spend all this money and we can't educate our people, but we can lock our people up. We can't find, we, we can't staff the CDC and other health departments because there's no money in the budget. But there's money in the budget to lock people up. And then, if y'all go deep, y'all look at, y'all listen to this thing good. Everybody invests in privatized prisons. The one college, the one college was invested in privatized prisons. When the students found out about it and, and, and protested, then they pulled their money out of privatized prisons. But it, all these, a lot of these colleges and industries support privatized prisons, got their money in privatized prisons. It's a moneymaker. Who wouldn't? Right? Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't invest in privatized prisons? It's a moneymaker. Like I'll tell you about how payroll works. When 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 on on that on that ninety or forty five day pay, how businesses borrow money from the bank to make them meet their payroll. When when uh, when when they when 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 they receipts come in, they pay the bank back at zero percent interest, and then they turn around and invest their money in what? Privatized prisons. That's why they never go nowhere. That's why all these countries got privatized prisons. And Joe Rogan talking about, I'm going to go to New Zealand. New Zealand is, 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 is the people are friendly, it's clean. Yeah. Have, have you looked at the prison situation there? Go, go, there, and, go there and do something uh, out the ordinary, and you're going to find yourself rotating out in that prison system, getting $90,000 a month paid, uh, paid, paid to keep your butt for a year, rotate you out. I want, what are we what I don't just, this, 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 just that just what I just don't understand I ain't got nothing against private prison because a, a prison private, 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 private prison managers are going to do what they got to do to make that money but I'm telling y'all everybody invests in privatized prisons everybody all these big money guys Warren Buffett Warren Buffett I bet you he got private prison stock bet he do Oh, he's a moneymaker. It ain't never going nowhere. Right? We got these drugs. We got these frivolous laws that we can keep people locked up. Now we got these laws to where uh, there is no statute of limitation now. Let's remove the statute of limitation now. We can lock more people up. For stuff they did, there's some stuff that they probably didn't forgot about. But we're going to remind them through the media that, hey, whoever did something to you 20, 30 years ago, you remember? Come on to us. We'll prosecute them. Because we got some jail beds that we need to fill. That's all that is. Nothing against privatized prison. But the system, man, the system. And the trap is set for you. 
It's like a rat. A rat know what a, a rat trap is. A rat can see that peanut butter. A rat don't like cheese. They see that peanut butter on that trap. They know it's a trap. But they think they smarter than the trap. Because one time they hit that trap, they got that peanut butter, that trap ain't go off. Say that they hit that trap, that trap ain't go off. Third they hit that trap, they ain't get a fourth. So we know about these traps. We know if you sell drugs and you get caught, you're going to jail. Or you can get killed. We know if you do drugs, what can happen? You're going to lose everything. But just not to privatize prison, but just how drugs house that dope just killed communities. Families, neighborhoods. And then the people who, 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 who neighborhoods that you destroyed by putting that dope in it, now you want to lock up all their kids and put them in prison. Two for one, right? I'm going to go and get out of here. Look. Look, man, y'all get by y'all local cigar spot. Y'all pick up one of these Joy Your Blacks, man. Y'all try to stick out. This is a real good stick. Real good stick. Real good stick. <coughs> Excuse me. Do this little Corona thing here. Like I say, ain't nothing wrong with me. I just got sinus bad, especially when it gets night like this. Do this little Corona thing here. Y'all do y'all best y'all can to keep yourselves and y'all family healthy. But, you know, support your local cigar spot, though. Get you a few cigars around the house. Coronavirus don't like cigar smoke. <laughs> It's just by just just by opinion and not the facts now. It's just it just it just fascinates to me, man. We just spend all this money like people up, man, and we can't even hire people at the to keep people on at the CDC to watch out for stuff like that where we can fight it overseas instead of fighting it over here. I hope this is a wake up call. Now I'm gonna tell y'all right now, when I vote this year. I'm not voting for Trump. I voted for Trump for economic reasons last time. When I vote, I'm voting for Joe Biden. They always say you vote for the lesser of two evils. Well, Joe Biden probably is the lesser of those two evils. But I know Joe Biden, even, even though Joe Biden, Joe Biden got some stuff with him. He got some stuff with him now. But I think Joe Biden knows enough. I think if Joe Biden was in there right about now, I think Joe Biden would have had the, 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 the foresight. I don't think we'd be doing what we're dealing with right now from a health standpoint. Economic, we probably would be, wouldn't be doing as good, but from a health standpoint. And I see now what's more important than money, making money, is your health. That's more important. See, we don't have that perspective when the economy is going good. When our 401ks are going up, investments looking good, everything beautiful. Because, see, we never dealt with anything like this before. You know, you had that 1918 pandemic. We 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 wasn't back then. <coughs> so we never dealt with anything like this here. So now the perspective is we know that our health is more important than money's. But I think if Joe Biden was in there because the Obama had people in place, right? With that old that uh Ebola thing, Obama had people in place in the CDC that was looking at all this stuff here. If Trump wouldn't have cut that money for, for 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 the CDC, 
that thing that Obama put in place because he went in like Obama. Remember he went in there to cut everything Obama, he just cut everything Obama did, redid it, and Obama did. We we would have we would have had people in place that would have been knowledgeable about this thing when we were shutting our country down. Because you remember oh, Ebola, we didn't have a problem with Ebola. You, you, you see how fast we locked Ebola down? We ain't had this problem with Ebola. But see, also, I think here with Trump, too, is the media. Because you probably had more cases of, of Ebola than, than it was reported. But see, with Trump, they're going to they report everything. Because you, because you haven't had more cases of corona deaths than you had with the flu this year already. But see, but with the media, the media is going to blow it up because it's Trump. They're going to blow it up. They blew up to the portion that just scared shut the whole country down. But if Obama was in there, I guarantee you it was more cases of, of, of uh, Ebola than what was reported to us. But they didn't want to pack the nation. See, they want to pack the nation out because Trump in there. But at the same time, it also reveals some things to us too. It reveals some things to us that, like I told y'all before, what is our government doing to help us? But privatize everything, and when you privatize it, you're not getting you're not good you're not getting good service, especially when you when you privatize it to companies that have no competitors. If I privatize my prison to only to to to, to, to only one private prison prison manager and they ain't got no competition, then I'm not gonna get good service. The only reason why Ford, GM, and Chrysler quality went up is because of the Koreans with the, with the Honda and them Kills and, and them Japanese with them cars. The quality got better. That's what made GM, Ford, and Chrysler step their game up because the competition got better. Now, if you're going to privatize something, it got to be competition. Even if you're going to privatize the prisons. It can't be no one prison pr prison company managing all your prisons with no competition, no free market competition. Gotta be competition. But at the same time, as, as a nation, you gotta be smart up and seeing how much money that you're putting into these prisons. But again, y'all know why they put money into the prison because everybody's getting kickbacks. Yeah, I ain't gonna lie to y'all. If all the politicians shoot, if I had any oversight, I'd probably be getting a kickback too. <laughs> I ain't gonna sit up here like I'm all right. Just, I ain't gonna lie to y'all. Man, you let me be on one of them prison boards. Shit, don't know. You want to put another private prison? How much? How much you dropping through my? I'm gonna leave my window half or open. How much you gonna drop? What? How much on that envelope you gonna drop in there? Uh, see, I see, I can say that because uh, I know I don't be in charge of anything like that. <laughs> I'm just messing with y'all. Look here, I'm going out of here now. Look, y'all check out that joy you're black. Always support your local cigar spots. And I'm going to say y'all like I always tell y'all when I leave y'all. In life, y'all take care of everybody. But more importantly, y'all take care of y'all self first. All right now.